0: Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand, and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello, and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the ANU and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hey, Darren. It's Saturday the 29th of January today, and we have decided to go well outside our comfort zone and talk about the situation in Ukraine. Needless to say, neither of us is anything close to an expert on Russia or its relations with the West, let alone the intricacies of Ukraine's history and domestic politics. However, we're assuming that the vast majority of our listeners are in a similar situation, And we have spent the last few weeks reading about the issue and both believe that it's important and worth a conversation. Indeed, I confess with a great deal of shame, actually, that I've found much of the reading I've done over the past few weeks to be not just interesting, but on some level, enjoyable from an armchair strategist's point of view, which if you step back and think about it, is pretty awful given the real world stakes. Anyway, let's begin with a potted summary of how we got here. Ukraine was one of the founding republics of the Soviet Union in 1922, but became independent again in 1991 with the dissolution of the USSR. Around 30% of Ukrainians speak Russian as a first language, and it is understood almost universally. Back in 2013, protests began in Ukraine, which culminated in February 2014 with what has been called the Maidan Revolution, with the elected but Russia-backed president being ousted from office. The spark for the protests was the government's refusal to sign agreements that would bring Ukraine closer to Europe. In response, Russian troops took over Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula, which was subsequently annexed. In April of that year, a few months later, pro-Russian separatists took control of the eastern Donbass region, which borders Russia, and are widely believed to be sponsored by Moscow, and they still control the region today. In July of that year of 2014, flight MH17 was shot down over this rebel-controlled area, which of course is how many Australians came to know more of the conflict. For its trouble, Russia was heavily sanctioned by the West, including being kicked out of the G8, which of course is now the G7. The following year, in February of 2015, an agreement was reached called minsk II, which set out a roadmap to peace in the Donbass region, which included constitutional reforms that would give the region a lot of autonomy, albeit under continued Ukrainian sovereignty. Fast forward now to July of 2019, when a new Ukrainian president, Zelensky, was elected on a ticket of establishing peace and improved relations with Russia. A fun side note to him, just a few months after his election, we had this infamous incident where President Donald Trump allegedly sought to leverage aid to Ukraine in order to get political dirt on the Biden family. Now, for reasons we probably can't get into in depth on this podcast, the promise of the Zelensky presidency for warming ties with Russia did not pan out. And across 2020 and 2021, both Ukraine and other external actors made policy choices that Moscow and Vladimir Putin perceived as hostile to its interests. The present crisis was foreshadowed by an initial escalation in March, April of last year, which saw Russian forces amass on the border and some skirmishes. The Russians, however, would pull back, and Putin had a summit with Biden in Switzerland in June. The current buildup commenced this past November and continues to this day with, I believe, some 100,000 troops currently amassed on the border, which, of course, is leading to fears that Russia will conduct some form of invasion. And Biden has said so directly himself, though many Europeans are a bit more sanguine or a bit less concerned in what they're saying publicly. Putin has issued a list of contentious demands, including a total ban on Ukraine ever joining NATO, but also a limit to the deployment of troops and weapons within NATO countries on Russia's flank. Last week, DFAT updated its travel advice, saying that Australians in Ukraine should leave and started the evacuation of diplomatic families, though most European countries have not yet followed suit. Okay, Alan, with that summary, let me bring you in here. I've tried to give just a factual outline so far, and I guess our first job on this podcast is to provide some strategic context you know why is Putin doing this? What are Russia's interests? So, what's your starting point? Well, before I could go on to
1: that, Darren, I'm glad you started by saying that neither of us was expert on Ukraine. I, you know, maybe a notch or two more knowledgeable about the politics of Central Europe and the Russian borderlands than I am about cryptocurrency and non-fungible tokens, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, it's not, but it's not all that much. Like you, though, I've been, I've been reading and listening widely to people with deeper knowledge than us, but I, I think it'll be most useful to our listeners if we use this podcast to draw on what's happening in order to illustrate issues that you and I do know more about, international relations and political science, in, in your case, and Australian foreign policy in mine. Absolutely. And, and look, I, I say that because I can't think of an issue in global affairs in recent years, which has brought together quite so neatly, so many of the central questions about international relations. And I'm sure that's one reason why we've both been so interested to read about it, as you were mm. saying. Just off the top of my head, the crisis is a perfect example of the use of military coercion and other forms of deterrence, It says important things about the behaviour of great powers, about the role of diplomacy, including the way signalling is used, the links between strategic and economic interests, the politics of the transatlantic relationship, the role of alliances and the practical meaning of norms like sovereignty and self-determination. So anyway, to start off, you asked for a view from me on what's happening. So a quick take. This is a crisis brewed and brought on by Putin as part of a long-term strategy, which, depending on your interpretation, is either to reassert a Russian sphere of influence in its neighbourhood, or to prevent US power under the guise of NATO from moving up to its own borders. And in the end, I guess, these are actually both the same thing. Putin's diplomatic and military objectives are still uncertain. And for anyone who, out there who wants to go down the rabbit hole of wargaming, there are some great articles about that. Ukraine itself is a complex actor, too. It's not entirely faultless in playing its own cards. It has contributed to the overall deterioration in relations. And of course, any Ukrainian government has the issue of trying to manage its own large Russian-speaking community. The Americans seem to me to be handling the crisis well, although I note that that's not the view of some of the more hawkish Australian commentators. But I reckon that having learned painful lessons from the mishandling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and from the French reaction to AUKUS as well, which brings Australia in, I reckon the Biden administration has been operating very effectively effectively You know, I know there's been a blip or two, but on the whole, I think it's managed its European allies and Moscow well. So if Putin expected a defensive and bruised Washington and a divided NATO to cave into his ambitions, I think he will have been disappointed. The Americans have been clever in communicating toughness and solidarity with allies while all the time leaving diplomatic avenues out. For Russia. And this is all territory that Secretary of State Tony Blinken is very familiar with. The complex problem here is that almost everyone agrees that Ukraine was extremely unlikely to get NATO membership. But none of the NATO members want to say this in as many words because it would seem to hand victory to Russia. Let's talk about spheres of influence. I guess you'd say that the probably best-known example of this was the American Monroe Doctrine of 1823, which laid out the idea that great powers don't want other great powers interfering around their own borders. But, you know, you don't have to look as long ago as that to find spheres of influence. The post-Second World War system, the so-called liberal rules-based order itself, was also specifically set up with that understanding. Europe was divided into eastern and western zones, and when the Hungarian and Czechoslovakian people wanted to rebel against Soviet rule, they got no more than rhetorical support from the western powers, and not much of that. Mm. Similarly, whether the Austrians wanted it or not, they, like Finland, were required to take a position of neutrality. And look, you just have to think of us even middle-sized countries like Australia are reluctant to see their neighbours engaging with unfriendly states. When you think about that response to the arrival of six Chinese policemen in Solomon Islands a few weeks ago, you can only imagine what our position would be if a radical government in PNG decided to deepen its defence relationship with China. Now, I I happen to think that on the whole, Australia manages its relations with its neighbours better than Russia does. And with luck, we would be able to deflect such prospects well in advance. But my I guess my question to you, Darren, is what does international relations theory have to tell us about spheres of influence? How does power sort out our views on this question?
0: Mm. Well, that's a terrific introduction, Alan, and a great question. A good place to start, I think, when modelling this type of scenario is the content of states' interests. While it's commonly said that great powers will always seek regional hegemony, this hides a deeper truth that you alluded to, Alan, in talking about Australia and PNG, that all states seek spheres of influence of some kind. And why is that? Because core state interests, security, prosperity and values, are of course affected by our neighbours, and even more so in a modern, globalised, and interdependent world. In a security sense, neighbouring countries can be launch pads for territorial threats or founts of instability. They can serve as buffers as well from external foes. Economically, neighbours are often, or usually the most convenient trading partners – but viewed through a geoeconomic lens may also be suppliers of essential goods or resources upon which the primary state is dependent. And on the values piece, the values that are espoused by neighbouring states are especially visible to and potentially influential over one's own political and social order. And of course, that may in turn feed into questions of security and prosperity. Now, Of course, what distinguishes a sphere of influence, quote unquote, from the mere successful practice of diplomacy and statecraft is that others are excluded from exercising influence, which is why only the more powerful states tend to succeed in creating them. Now, there are lots of interesting questions that IR scholarship has tackled on this issue, including the form that spheres of influence take compare the Monroe Doctrine to the Iron Curtain, to the Liberals' rules-based order. Second, the resources required to maintain them. And of course, think of the concept of imperial overreach. And third, the conflicts of interest generated by attempts to create and maintain them. Often, of course, these end in war, such as between Japan and the United States at the end of 1941. So let's bring in Ukraine now. As you say, Alan, Putin's Russia feels its security is threatened. And broadly, there are two ways you could neutralize that threat if you're Russia. One, coerce the NATO countries to make concessions by holding Ukraine itself hostage and or two, change Ukraine itself, which would likely require some sort of military action. Both methods, though, would have the consequence of extending Russia's sphere of influence. But the extension of Russia's sphere of influence In the pursuit of its own national security creates two conflicts of interest one it may itself unacceptably threaten the security of nato countries which is your classic security dilemma and two it severely curtails ukraine's sovereign choices to determine its own future of course but surely all nation states
1: except the largest are curtailed in their sovereign choices by a whole range of factors Mongolia, for example, might think that it could maximise its opportunities and security by entering into an alliance with the US, but that's never going to happen. So IR theory can't be predicated on the right of each state to determine its own future. That's the job of foreign policy, which is the way the state acts within the parameters available to it to maximise its space in the international system and the choices available to it at any one time, surely.
0: Sure, sure. Look, Alan, you will get no talk of rights from me. (laughs) I was framing this as explaining the conflict of interest. The curtailment of Ukraine's sovereignty creates these conflicts of interests with the Ukrainians themselves, of course, in a bilateral sense, but also with any other state who was worried about the implications of both the way the sovereignty is being curtailed, you know, at the tip of, at the point of a gun, basically, and the sphere of influence that might result. Now, Alan, to your second question about power, look, it isn't only power that tells us how these conflicts of interest get resolved, necessarily. First, we should ask, is there a political solution that does not involve violence that both ameliorates a security dilemma on both sides while preserving as much of Ukraine's sovereignty as possible? Now, that might not be possible, and as of now, it does not look like any of Russia's objectives has been achieved or could be achieved from what's being offered by the West. And that so far isn't giving Putin any reason to back down. So if indeed a negotiated solution cannot be found, then power is going to sort things out. Short of actual fighting, power includes here both the capability to impose costs and the capacity to endure them. So, what is the quantum of costs that needs to be threatened or imposed on Russia to act as a deterrent such that these costs are larger than the costs faced from backing down and not achieving Moscow's security objectives? So, that's like a standard theoretical framework that I start with. But there are two wrinkles, I think, in this particular situation. First, the threat posed by Ukraine to Russia is not only a classic territorial one, a classic geopolitical one, in the sense of bringing NATO to Russia's borders. I mean, after all, NATO is already at Russia's borders in the Baltic states. The threat is also from Ukraine's political and economic drift towards Europe. If, for example, Ukraine were to become a flourishing European democracy, that, of course, would pose a political threat to Russia's autocracy, to Putin's Putin's regime. And because Putin is the Russian state right now, that is transformed into a national security threat.
1: It also goes to what you were saying before about values. The values that Putin wants to impose are not necessarily the values that, uh, well, are not the values we would want, but there's a values dimension to what Putin is doing as well.
0: Yes. And it works. So I'm saying it works the other direction as well. The, the, the espousal of values on the Ukraine side then flows back the other direction towards Russia. And so the question is, to what extent should we, as armchair strategists, or should the NATO governments acknowledge, even legitimize, and try to resolve security dilemmas that stem in part from ideological issues? And that, of course, is a question that is not irrelevant to the Indo-Pacific either. The second wrinkle, I think, is that you know, Russia almost certainly has the military power to defeat Ukraine and force major political concessions, and no one other than the Ukrainians, maybe, has the political will to fight back with military force. But if that happens and Russia succeeds, what would the consequences for the larger system, you know, and broader questions of security and values be? Because you would have an autocracy largely extinguishing the sovereignty of a democracy on NATO's doorstep with no military response directly? Would the act of creating a sphere of influence in this way pose a threat or somehow erode the broader international order? Like, and, and, and if so, should that be factored into the NATO response?
1: There are surely quite a few questions about whether Russia can neatly defeat Ukraine, as you put it. The consequences wouldn't be you know felt immediately they'd take a long time to become clear and if the US delivers as i'm certain it will the financial sanctions promised these would have certainly have a large impact including i would expect on the way China would have to operate with Russia
0: yes look i agree these are open questions but i still think how you approach them depends upon how you view the validity of Moscow's grievances and the capacity of NATO to push back. In the New York Times, which was subsequently republished in the AFR, Ross Douthat wrote that, quote, the attempt to draw Ukraine out of Russia's orbit, the partway open door to Ukrainians who preferred westward-focused alliances, was a foolish overcommitment even when America's power was at its height. This is not a question of what Ukrainians deserve. In geopolitics, good intentions are always downstream from the realities of power. I want to contrast that with a piece that Francis Fukuyama wrote for his website American Purpose. Quote, Ukraine today is the frontline state In the global geopolitical struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. Europeans who value liberal democracy for themselves need to understand that they cannot be bystanders in this conflict. This is why the defense of Ukraine should be of urgent importance to anyone who cares about global democracy. End quote. Personally, I don't agree with Fukuyama that Ukraine is the frontline state. Nor do I think the democracy-authoritarian fault line is the decisive frame for how this crisis will reverberate through the broader international order, but I, I do think it will reverberate, which is why I'm you know, I want to see both creative diplomacy to try to mitigate the security dilemma, but also I think that Russia should face significant costs if it invades. In other words, I want it demonstrated both that security improvements can be achieved through diplomacy, but also that they can't be achieved through force. What do you think, Alan? Those
1: pieces, which which we'll link to, uh, really neatly encapsulate the differences between a conservative realist like Dutat and a liberal Democrat like Fukuyama. Now, I know this is a cheap shot, but Fukuyama was the author of the most celebrated victory hymn of the early 1990s, his article in the national interest, the end of history argued that I know putting it crudely that the liberal capitalist economic and political model had finally triumphed in, in the world, but that looks much less certain now. (laughs) Competition for
0: models is back. Alan, Alan, one day soon we should debate the merits of that argument, both the article and the book, because I think it's gone from overrated to significantly underrated as time has passed. Okay, you, you, you're you wrong. <laughs> Fukuyama I know, is,
1: is frequently verballed, and I can understand his sympathy for the Democrats he knows in Ukraine, even though he also acknowledges how flawed the system is. But the problem I have with his argument is that he does not have anything to say about how the US might go about protecting Ukraine and what it should be willing to put at stake. Dutat, on the other hand, seems to understand those stakes much better. He says that an ideal solution would be to have NATO expansion permanently tabled with Ukraine subject to the inevitable Russian pressure, but neither invaded nor annexed and with our NATO allies shouldering more of the burden of maintaining a security perimeter in Eastern Europe. Now, that solution will horrify American hawks of both Democrat and Republican strains, but I sympathise with his view that there's no perfect answer here, only a least bad balancing of options, and no perfect answer, only a balancing of options seems to me a pretty reasonable definition of the job of foreign policy.
0: Alan, don't forget to include the least bad frame, because I know economics is supposed to be the dismal science, but arguably international relations is even more grim.
1: <laughs> I am maybe grim, Darren, but prudence is the best adjective to describe <laughs> the aims of foreign policy. Now look let's let's you, you mentioned the economic sanctions and so on before. Let's look in more detail at that because you've been doing a lot of work recently on geoeconomics. So I'm I'm really interested in how you read the implicit and explicit coercive threats underway from all sides the threat to European energy supplies from Russia the threat to Russian participation in banking and international finance from the US what lessons will the Chinese be drawing from this by the way
0: it's not only coercive threats But the extent to which economic factors are sources of both offensive and defensive power, which is quite notable. Let's start with the defensive side. There was a terrific newsletter from Adam Tooze, the historian that we've mentioned previously, that was published in mid January, which noted the striking growth of Russia's foreign exchange reserves since 2015, fueled, of course, by oil and gas sales, but are now in the range of 400 to 600 billion and therefore amongst um, the largest foreign reserves of any country in the world. And as Tuze observes, this gives Putin freedom of strategic manoeuvre, in particular to withstand many types of economic sanctions. Then, as you mentioned, Alan, you have the interdependence from the energy relationship with Europe. Curtailing Russian energy exports would eventually hurt Russia's economy, but it would bring equally significant and probably faster costs on the European customers who rely on gas, for example, to keep warm in winter. This means that NATO allies have far fewer economic tools to respond to Russia's use of military tools. And I want to quote Tuz here, quote, Putin's stance produces outrage in the West. His assertion of Russia's autonomy by all means necessary exposes the vanity of the post-Cold War order, That assumed that the boundary between different forms of power, hard, soft and financial, would be drawn by Western powers, the United States and the EU, on their own terms and to suit their own strengths and preferences. The West has itself always employed a blend of strategies, financial pressure, soft power and military force, to achieve its goals. Russia's challenge has forced a reshuffling of that pack and new combinations of diplomatic persuasion, soft power, financial, and ultimately military threats and coercion. That this should be happening in Europe compounded the scandal, end quote. Now, Alan, examples of categories of sanctions that experts argue might impose the type of costs on Putin to shift his calculus include the cutting off of Russian banks entirely from US financial system and export controls on goods that Russia itself imports, such as intermediate inputs like car parts or machine tools and so forth. Now, both of these types of sanctions pose their own challenges, such as the cost to international investors who are holding Russian assets or the complexity and difficulty of imposing and enforcing export controls from the Western side. So I really can't say it better than twos, though. And I think this is the lesson China will be drawing, too, that Russia is showing it is possible to redraw the boundaries and hierarchy of instruments of statecraft. More specifically, in the geoeconomic domain, Beijing will likely see this as just further confirmation for the need for autonomy or self-sufficiency in key trade and financial domains as essential For an effective strategic posture overall. But I think Beijing has long believed this to be true. Yeah, that's very interesting,
1: Darren. Looking towards solutions now, I see that the US has finally called for a meeting of the UN Security Council on Ukraine. But until now, no one's been talking much about the role of the United Nations. Why is that? Was after all the institutions specifically tasked to preserve international peace? I don't want to be naive about this. When disputes involve members of the P5 with their vetoes, of course, the UN is always marginalised. But does it have any role, do you think? Does IR theory tell us anything about when the UN or other external bodies, the OSCE, for example, will and won't play a role?
0: A few years ago, Alan, when I was preparing for a podcast interview that never actually happened I did some research on the prominence of the United Nations in Australia's public discourse. How many times, for example, have either of us out of the name Antonio Guterres, who is the current Secretary General, on mm. this podcast before? I don't think it's yeah. very many. Yeah. So, I, so back then, this is a few years ago now, I ran a very crude test searching for the term United Nations over three five-year windows and using... Australian newspapers only as my source, and this is on the Factiva database. So from December 2004 to to December 2009, there were almost 19,000 mentions. From December 2009 to December 2014, that went down to 14,500 mentions. And then from December 2014 to December 2019, that was down to below 10,000 mentions. So we're talking a drop of 50% from that first five-year window to that third. Then I did a search for the names of the past three Secretaries-General, picking a two-year window while each was in office. Kofi Annan, and the window was from the mid-2004 to mid-2006, had 1,760 mentions. Ban Ki-moon, for an equivalent window between 2013 and 2015, was down to 830. And then Antonio gutierrez From mid-2017 to mid-2019, just 153 mentions in Australian newspapers. So I think those those facts speak for themselves in terms of the decline of the prominence of the UN in public discourse. And I think the reason for that, and the the answer to your question, Alan, is that a changing balance of power is giving existing international organisations less space to move, especially when they are structured around consensus decision-making. And it's not just the UN, of course. You've got the WTO prominent here as well. UN peacekeeping saw its heyday in the 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union because prior to that time, the Soviets had been using their P5 veto on the Security Council, having, you'll recall, being burned in the 1950s when they boycotted the security council, which allowed a resolution on the Korean war, which was served as the basis for yes, a yes. broader international intervention, in the Korean war. So having learned that lesson, they used their veto liberally after that. IR theory tells us that international organizations can be effective when both sides to a conflict actually want a peaceful solution. But to get there, they need an impartial intermediary to facilitate negotiations and monitor and enforce any agreements. This is not the case here. And it's even less so, given that a member of the P5, as you said, Alan, is a primary party to the dispute. So I don't think we're going to see much action in the Security Council. But IR theory does tell us that a Secretary General can potentially play a role and this is in the exercise of his or her good offices, as they're called, where he or she is perceived as credibly independent and impartial. Without any mandate from the Security Council, they can act. And the example that's most often cited is when Kofi Annan negotiated a memorandum of understanding with Saddam Hussein in 1998 to facilitate the return of weapons inspectors to Iraq. But again, with a P5 member in this conflict, that's unlikely, and I think the same applies to a regional organisation like the OSCE as well. (laughs) Alan, I feel like this talk of irrelevance is a nice transition to the meat and potatoes of this podcast, which is, of course, Australia and the world. So can you talk us through the extent there is an Australian angle here?
1: Oh, neatly done, Darren. Um, yeah, yeah let's, let's look at Australia's response. Uh, I, I assume we can agree from what you just said that Australia is essentially a bystander in the Ukraine crisis without much influence to wield beyond declaratory statements. Most of the government's comments and actions seem to me to have been crafted with more of an eye on the domestic debate and on how we are seen by allies than on any belief that we can shift anything on the ground. And that includes the sort of gestures we've seen on cyber cooperation and natural gas. And I'm not complaining about that. I think it makes perfect sense. To be clear, though, saying that Australia is, you know, an observer far away from the conflict is not the same thing as saying that the situation is unimportant to Australia. One of the defining characteristics of Australian foreign policy over time has been its recognition of the interest we have in the stability of the international order as a whole, and in this case, of course, America's place in it. So it's right that we pay close attention to these events, but to be blunt, we're not going to shift anything or anyone. Now, one of the things that has surprised me a little bit, though, is the way official policy has mirrored so closely that of Washington and London, including, you know, to the the decisions about when we pull out our diplomats and so on. It may have been the fact that we had British ministers here in town for for Aukman meetings, but our actions and statements have been remarkably in sync. Views from elsewhere in Europe, the Germans, French, the Dutch, don't seem to be factored in. Uh, We've had no reports that I've seen, for example, of the minister talking to counterparts outside the Anglosphere on it. One issue we're clearly concerned about is the impact developments in Europe will have on America's capacity to manage itself in this part of the world, and there are two dimensions to that. First, what lessons will China take from the way the US and its alliance partners respond to the situation in the Ukraine and at its crudest, This is the thought that if America backs down to Putin in any way, China will be emboldened to act in Asia, uh, presumably across the Taiwan Strait or in the South China Sea. Secondly, however, the situation with Ukraine also reminds us that the demands upon American resources from Europe are not disappearing despite the competition with China in the Indo-Pacific. And you you have to remember, too, that Iran stands constantly ready to remind Washington that it can't forget about the Middle East either. So I think you can detect patterns of anxiety on the brows of Australian policymakers as they're reminded again that whatever Washington says about the importance of the Indo-Pacific the global demands on the US administration are always going to outstrip anything Beijing or Moscow needs to do simply because of the construction of the current international system. And someone somewhere has to be asking how long this is sustainable. And it seems to me that Emmanuel Macron is certainly doing that. How do you read this?
0: Look, your observation of Australia hewing to the Anglo line is very astute and I hadn't missed it. I mean, couldn't it have been a very low-cost thing for Canberra to tell Paris we would support them in any way was needed? And maybe we did behind the scenes. Or
1: maybe they wouldn't take our phone calls. Maybe, also
0: possible. (laughs) But it it, it might have been one interesting way of of looking to build some goodwill, but, you know, I guess we'll never know. Look, I do empathise with the feelings of anxiety among Australian policymakers. But I do think Washington can manage this. And I agree with what you said earlier, Alan, that, that Biden so far has done a decent job. And look, we both may look very foolish <laughs> mere hours or, or days from now. But I, I saw one public intellectual on Twitter who I won't name suggest that the idea of stationing more troops in Eastern Europe within NATO countries spelled the end of the pivot to Asia. And I look, I don't think that's true. This might be a longer discussion, and we're out of my expertise here, but to me it seems that US ground troops aren't the kind of thing that tips the balance in Asia, and, but can actually add a lot to the European theatre, and this actually is the type of twin challenge that aligns with US hard power assets quite well, and will ultimately allow Biden you know, to keep his focus on Asia and on China in particular as his highest priority. I do think, as I said, I do think more troops in the Baltics in Poland is a good idea for reasons I said earlier, that, you know, to signal to Putin that efforts to use force to improve his security can actually have a counterproductive impact. But look, you're right. It is certainly true that Washington can't do it all. And that's why I think the intra-European divisions that seem to be there in some form are so interesting. As you alluded, Macron is looking to lead, but Germany has sent very mixed signals. I think, in part, because you have a new leadership, a new chancellor, and new, a new coalition government, and they're still finding their feet. But I think it's another reminder that the future of the order is dependent not just on what the great powers will do, but what middle powers, regional powers will do as well.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's right. Well, look, let, let's look at China. In many ways, the strategic situation is very different for China from that in in Europe. Russia has a powerful and effective military capability that demands we take note of it as we're doing, but it is a much less important economic power than China and has less to offer other global partners gas apart. Putin is a self-declared Cold War nostalgic and he wants his cordon sanitaire preserved. China is in a much more constrained situation. Its neighbours are a much tougher bunch than Russia's. Um, Line up South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, India... For reasons we talked about last time, I I think Beijing is going to want to keep things on an even keel while it manages an uncertain economic situation through to the party congress at the end of the year. So I don't think we're likely to see the Chinese drawing any sort of lesson for their own actions from Putin's behaviour, at least in the short term. They may both be ambitious, but Putin and Xi seem to me to be very different
0: personalities, and they're managing very different systems. Do you agree with that? I do. And I would add that I think Beijing well understands the nature of US interests and commitments in the Indo-Pacific. It's very different to those on the eastern flank of NATO. So it would be foolish to draw inferences from what's happening there. Nevertheless, I saw that China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi told his US counterpart, Tony Blinken, this week that Moscow had reasonable security concerns that needed to be taken seriously. So I would I would not expect Beijing to take a decisive view or to play a decisive role in this dispute, but take the opportunity to toggle between the two sides to increase its influence with both at the margins. I think we should wrap things up there, Alan. Let's do our final segment. As always, reading, listening and watching, what do you have for us this week?
1: I said earlier that I didn't know much more about the situation in Ukraine than I did about cryptocurrency. And that Comparison, I I guess, came to mind because I'd just plugged a couple of the gaps in my Bitcoin (laughs) ignorance by reading a, a really excellent review piece in the Lowy Interpreter by Greg Earle. The article covered the international implications for developing countries of the use of cryptocurrencies, partly, I hadn't understood this, to reduce the costs of overseas remittances. And he also very usefully used the release before Christmas of the government's mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, known as MAIFO, to examine where precisely Australia's money is going in foreign policy. And it turns out that the Pacific step up is looking more and more like a Papua New Guinea rescue program. So that's well worth reading. And secondly, and well away from the issues we cover here, I just wanted to note the experience I had last week of watching Steven Spielberg's remake of the Bernstein-Sondheim musical West Side Story. Now, I mention this because I think the film is a masterpiece and I didn't expect that. It remains set in the middle of the last century, but the subtle new screenplay by the playwright Tony Kushner has remarkably relevant things to say about Contemporary American society. And finally, I watched it with only two other people in the entire cinema. So it brought home to me the extent to which this whole big screen experience, which is certainly how West Side Stories should be seen, may be in peril, leaving us with nothing but streaming on our TV sets and iPhones. So here's a plea whatever movie you want to see, don't wait for Netflix, but get off your backside and support your local movie theatre.
0: Well, Alan, on this exact point, let me recommend for a second time what's easily my favourite podcast at the moment called Plain English. And it's done by one of the Atlantic writers, Derek Thompson. And there is an episode from just last month on the rise of streaming, the Uh. streaming wars and the decline of cinema. You'll find it, depressing, Alan. Basically, cinema has been in secular decline since the 1940s, but it is extremely interesting. Uh, And they do some thought experiments about what is going to survive on the big screen into the future. And the idea that maybe what we now think of as IMAX is going to become cinema. Uh, The only things that are good on the very largest screens are going to be economically viable for that in cinema experience. More Marvel superheroes, in other words. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Loud noises and lasers and special effects. Exactly. Look, I won't make any other recommendations other than I'll mention that we'll post some of the best writing that you and I have read and shared with each other, Alan, in preparing for this episode. Other than the 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 Adam Two's Chart Book newsletter, maybe I'll mention one piece by Rob Lee for the Foreign Policy Research Institute as another one that I found particularly illuminating. So check out the show page for those details. And that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank again Mitchell McIntosh for audio editing today and thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.